Amen. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 1. It's on page 991 of your pew Bible as we continue our study in Paul's letter to a young minister and to the congregation he pastors. The last couple of weeks we've seen that this chapter is about, this chapter is about sound doctrine or healthy life-giving teaching. Uh, Just like in our own day, so also in Paul and Timothy's day, in God's church, sometimes there are false teachers who need to be stopped from twisting God's word and thereby harming people, injuring people, making people sick spiritually. Unsound teaching or bad teaching leads to rotten fruit. Sound teaching, good teaching, leads to good fruit by the work of the Spirit. Next, uh, tonight, Paul turns away from the false teachers we've been hearing about to himself and his own experience. And he highlights the effects that the gospel had in his life. He highlights what God through the gospel produced in him. What are its health-giving fruits? Let's think about that tonight uh, from 1 Timothy chapter 1, 12 through 14. Hear now the word of our God. <clears throat> I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Amen. This is God's word. May he write it on our hearts. Let's look to him in prayer. Our Father in heaven, I pray that you would open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word. Grant that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Imagine you are looking for a job. Some of you don't have to imagine. You ask around and you send out your resume and you open the classified page of the newspaper uh, looking for a job. To your great delight, there in the first column is listed a job opening with a local bank looking for a branch manager. But you wonder if you are the kind of person they're looking for because the list of qualifications is the strangest list you have ever seen for a banking job. The advertisement reads, the person applying for this position need not have any prior experience in banking, nor must he or she have any special training in banking. Indeed, No educational requirements are necessary whatsoever. A demonstrated track record of personal mismanagement will be considered a plus, 
and persons with a history of unethical practices, bankruptcy, money laundering, and armed robbery will be given first consideration. Can you imagine coming across a job description like that for a bank? The bank would be crazy, right? To hire somebody of that sort with that kind of background and character to work as a bank manager. That would be the worst possible choice, we say. What kind of employer would do such a thing? God would. God did. That is exactly the sort of thing God did when he took Paul, who was the most unlikely candidate you could ever imagine to be an apostle. And yet God set him apart as one who would take the gospel to the Gentiles. So tonight we hear Paul speak of this extraordinary mercy that called him into service and into salvation. He tells us what God did for him through the gospel. And I want you to think about three main things it produced in him tonight. Three things the gospel produces in his people. Number one is thankfulness. Notice how he begins at verse 12. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul begins here, and you might be tempted to say, oh, well, that's, that's not such a big deal. This is a little thing. I mean, why, why not just skip past that onto the meat of the text? <laughs> why not? <laughs> why do you have to teach your children to say please and thank you? Because it's not natural. When Jesus healed ten lepers, they all walked away and only one came back to say thank you. Paul says what will characterize people in the last days, and we are in those last days, is that they will be, among many other things, ungrateful. Lacking in thankfulness to God. So their mouths don't say, I'm so thankful. Maybe the last time we thanked God was just before we ate. But we, that, that may have been the only thing we've thanked God for, really, in the last month or even year. Maybe your heart doesn't say thank you for all the blessings, the spiritual blessings I have in Jesus. What does it take to be thankful? <laughs> well, it's not by the law. And it's not by commanding yourself to just be thankful. Paul talked about the law the last couple of weeks. And the law doesn't make a person thankful. It comes a different way. Imagine it this way. Let me illustrate it first. How does it come? Imagine you're going on vacation. Imagine you travel out west. You might thank the driver of the tour bus after your trip. I mean, it's kind of polite, right, to say, hey, thanks. And you might be appreciating him for driving safely or doing what he's expected to do, probably what you have paid him to do and hoped he would do. You may have enjoyed the scenes and you may have thought, this tour guide did a great job describing what I'm seeing. But when you come back to us and tell it was worth every penny you spent, Uh, there might be just a touch of self-congratulation in there, right? You were wise enough or opportunistic enough to have taken the tour. 
You might be generically grateful that you live in a world that has beautiful things and good tours and the kind of economy where you can afford the luxury of taking a tour of a beautiful place. But what you don't do is gush with gratefulness about the bus driver you paid. But if you were out west in a desert and your car broke down and you were dying of thirst and you were staggering the 50 miles to civilization with no hope of making it, and that same bus driver pulled up alongside and he opened his door and he said, can I help you? Come in. You would sing his praises of him who rescued you. That's Paul's attitude. I'm so thankful, he says, to Christ Jesus my Lord. He saved me and he called me into his service, he says. Now look, Paul is saying that because he's contrasting himself with the false teachers we've heard about the last couple of weeks whose message doesn't make people thankful. It doesn't make them abound in gratitude. Their message was, do what God tells you to do and you'll enjoy the benefits of your obedience. Salvation, they said, comes by payment Uh, Or as payment for service rendered. A transaction, not a rescue. But Paul says, we thank Jesus for his mercy, for his grace that overflowed. We don't say thanks for setting up a system that was so just that if I made the right spiritual decisions, then you would justly hand me what those decisions deserve. But we thank that God that when his holiness demanded perfection and when his justice demanded an accounting and we realized we were hopelessly lost and could not improve our situation, then Jesus died for the ungodly and he showed us mercy. That's what we give thanks for. He gives thanks for salvation in verses 13 and 14. He begins by giving thanks for God appointing him to service, calling him into service. Notice his language at verse 13. Verse 12, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. God gave me salvation and he, and he gave me meaningful work to do. And those things went hand in hand. I was reading uh, just uh, yesterday about a rock star and a warrior in the days of heavy metal when Nirvana was on the cusp of greatness their first opening tour included a 23 or 21 year old bass player in 1989 named Jason Everman he joined them on their first nationwide tour he was the only guy in the band that had money from prior work experience so He paid for their first album, which was produced, and they owed their producer for it. But he was moody, the article says, and uh, they canceled the tour after some time of traveling together rather than finish it with him. And so he was gone. He was hired to play in another band that was on the cusp of fame, Soundgarden. Things there didn't work out. Uh, as well, and he left them. And at the age of 26, having joined another band and then leaving them, he he joined the army. And he fast-tracked to become an army ranger. And on September 11, 2001, he was in special forces training. He was 
one of those guys that nobody can, whose career nobody can really talk about in any detail. We know that he was one of those guys riding those horses in Afghanistan, fighting the Taliban in the very earliest days of America's retaliation. His career included a, a whole mess of things that can't be talked about, but he did have his picture taken with the Secretary of Defense, and he had his picture taken with General Stanley McChrystal, and he's got a wall of a cottage filled with all the medals he received. And then he left, got out of the military, and he went to college, and he studied philosophy. Yet sadly, here's his philosophy of life. Quote, the way I look at it, life is meaningless. The meaningfulness is what you impart to it. He says, and I want to say how tragic that is, a fascinating life, even a heroic life. And yet, by his own account, by his own understanding, for him, none of it ultimately matters. None of it has ultimate meaning. My work, he says, my life, my service, it only has the meaning, he says, I can make up for it. Because it is truly meaningless, he says. But Paul's view is very different. God, he says, rescued me from a purposeless life, from a, a life on the, on the wrong trajectory, pursuing the wrong things, going down the wrong path. And he restored to my life uh, service that matters to King Jesus and his gospel. He appointed me to serve him. When I was throwing my life away, Jesus suddenly rescued me, he says. Now look, I realize you're calling, uh, none of us are called to be an apostle. You may not be called to be a preacher. You may be called to some other line of work, some other kind of service, and that is more than okay. That is God's plan for you. There are different ways to serve. Paul could have said, God appointed me to be this really important apostle. But he just says, God appointed me to be a, a deacon, a, a servant. As if to say, I'm just an example of what God does as God appoints all he saves into some service for Jesus and to Jesus. And I want to say to us, everything we do can be service to him and for him. Every legitimate activity and work. You can wash dishes in service to Jesus. You can plant gardens. You can raise children. You can labor in a blue-collar job or labor in a white-collar job or you can labor in a no-collar job for Jesus. Nothing you do is ultimately meaningless. You've been called, if you're a Christian, to salvation and to service. And God has, in his providence, placed you where, at least for now, he wants you. And so Paul is abundantly thankful, I'm grateful, I don't deserve this, and nobody is worthy of this. It's a gift to be thankful for. He says, I thank Christ Jesus that he considered me faithful and appointed me to his service. Now, you have to ask the question, is Paul saying, well, God looked down at me and, you know, God said, Paul, well, he's an exceedingly faithful guy. That's why I'll make him an apostle. Is that what he's saying? Well, of course that's not what he's saying. What does he say in the very next breath? I was a blasphemer. I was a persecutor. I was an angry, violent, insolent, arrogant man. He's not saying that God saw him and chose him because he was such a faithful guy. 
Paul is saying something different. He's saying, I'm amazed. I'm amazed that God would look down at me and count me trustworthy and call me into this work of service for his people. It is only mercy that could do such a thing. And he's in fact telling you how it was that he became a faithful man as God said he was. He's saying my fitness or my faithfulness was due to the inner strength I was given. Notice the language of verse 12. I thank you who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord. He's, he's not saying my natural ability, my innate willpower did this. I am weak, Paul says. I know that I am frail and I am fickle and I am a sinner. I'm the chief of sinners, he'll say in the very next breath. We'll hear that next week. But what God required of me, God gave to me. Look what Jesus has enabled me to do, is what he's saying. He strengthened me for this work. As Augustine put it, God does not choose anyone who is worthy, but in choosing him renders him worthy. And that's true for all his people. One day we're going to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. And in our heart of hearts, we'll think, and... Forgive me, when we get to heaven, we won't have any sinful thought. But at least in this world, I think most of us would, be, would say, no, Lord. I mean, respectfully, I don't, I don't believe I've been a good and faithful servant. I know how unfaithful I have been. And yet Jesus says he will say to his people, well done, thou good and faithful servant. And it's not like there's six people lined up who were the superstars and the rest of her going, yes, those people get that commendation. But God gives what he requires. God enables. And God in his good pleasure for all of us overlooks a multitude of sins. Even while he, like a father to his young children, commends their feeble efforts in his service. But this is the first thing. Paul is just abounding in thankfulness, and the gospel produced that in his life. Now, the second thing the gospel produced was this honesty. Honesty. He he honestly names his past sinfulness in this text. He'll get to his present next week. But notice he says, though formerly, verse 13, I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy. You see what he's saying. He's saying, in, in some sense, unlike those false teachers, I'm not boasting that I kept the law. I broke the commandments the law stands against. I took the name of the Lord in vain, he says. I ridiculed Jesus and his followers. I cursed the name of Jesus in Acts 26 Verse 11, he says, I tried to force Christians to blaspheme. And he says, I was a persecutor. And you remember that in the earliest days of Christianity, especially among the Jews, there was no one who labored harder against God and his people than Paul. Many times they would gather together in a synagogue to hear the word of God and Paul would break through the door and he would ask, who of you believes in Jesus as the Messiah? And when they said, I do, They professed faith. He would walk them out the door and he would send them to be tortured and to be killed. Acts 26.10, I not only locked up many of the saints in prison, says Paul, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. So he was a persecutor. And again, 
by his own admission, he was an insolent opponent. Some of your translations talk about uh, being a violent man. The word behind it uh, is a word from which we get hubris. It's, it's an attitude that produced an action. He looked with contempt upon Christians. He despised them in his heart, and he wanted to humiliate them, and he wanted to hurt them. As again, Acts 26 says, towards Christians, Paul says, I was full of raging fury. That was his disposition. Paul says, I know what I was. I know what I did. (laughs) It's no secret to you, Timothy, and to the congregation, but would you remember This is who I was. I'm not hiding. I'm not pretending I was better than I was. I am admitting what a wretch I was. That's the effect of the gospel on a person. Lifeway Christian Resources, one of those large uh, bookstore, book distributors, has stopped selling the book, The Boy Who Came Back from Heaven. It was written by uh, a child and his father, Kevin and... Alex Malarkey. Alex was a child who claimed to have visited heaven when he died in a, or supposedly died in a car accident, which left him badly injured. And then growing up out of his childhood, having written the book with his father of his experience, so he says in heaven, he has now admitted that he made the whole story up, that he was telling people what they wanted, he thought they wanted to hear. Why did, he, why did he admit that? He was on the cusp, if he hadn't already, of making millions of dollars probably, or thousands, tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands. It was a run, one of those runaway bestsellers in your local Christian bookstore. Why did, he, why did he admit it? Why did he tell it he was a liar and a fraud? Well, he said one day he picked up the Bible and he began to read the Bible's descriptions of heaven. He became convinced that the Bible was true and the Bible had the story that every Christian needs to believe, that the whole world needs to read, and that his story was just something he made up. And so he admitted, I've just been telling the story people want to hear. And why did he admit it? Because the gospel had come home to his heart, the truth of God's grace in Jesus and what he promises And so he was willing to admit that he was a liar. Now look, Paul's example here doesn't mean that you have to have a dramatic testimony of being a persecutor and killer of Christians or an, an internationally known liar, right? You don't have to grow up if you're a child. You don't have to grow up rebellious and then have a crisis conversion afterwards. In fact, ordinarily, I want to say this, God works through families and and the children of his church usually grow up and discover at an early age their own sinfulness and their need for Jesus and begin to taste the sweetness of being forgiven and Lord willing, fall in love. And we hope some will never know a day. They didn't want to walk with Jesus. He'd been so great. They're so grateful to him for what he did for them. Not everybody has to have a Paul-like Damascus Road conversion story. But in every Christian, there is a conviction of personal sinfulness and a conviction that we need to be saved and Jesus is the Savior that we need and is provided. So I want to ask you, can you name your own sins? 
Can you call them what they are? I'm not going to ask you to stand publicly and announce every secret thing that you have done. That wouldn't be appropriate. But do you know what you're prone to? Do you know what you wish you weren't or hadn't done? What grieves you and what are you repenting of? Can you own those things as, in fact, the things that you have done and need to be rescued from? The gospel makes us more honest. But notice, notice, don't be troubled by this language. Notice that Paul says, after describing how awful he was, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. Listen, don't misunderstand. But Paul isn't saying my ignorance and my unbelief qualified me, <laughs> merited mercy. That is, of course, not what he's saying. He isn't excusing himself. He, he doesn't say killing Christians is okay if you do it in ignorance. Or, uh, you know, my unbelief gets me off the hook for my sins. He doesn't mean that. He, he doesn't mean that uh, these things weren't so sinful, uh, therefore he deserves mercy. He's saying, look how sinful I was. I needed mercy because justice would have damned me. And he may be emphasizing the truth that he had not committed the unpardonable sin. Picking up the language of Numbers 15 and other places, speaking as a Jewish now believer to many who wanted to be teachers of the law, many who were Jews, who were misunderstanding the Old Testament, who, who made a, the strong distinction in accordance with the Old Testament between sins of the high hand uh, and common sins. And the New Testament distinction between sins which can be pardoned and the one unpardonable sin. Paul may be simply saying here, I didn't commit the sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, though I blasphemed God in Christ. But that blasphemy against the Spirit is the sin of knowing that Jesus is the true promised Messiah, your only hope of being saved, and rejecting him and scorning him and walking away from him. And it's unforgivable because he is the only place where you can find forgiveness. So, so that when he describes all the, all the terrible sins we saw last week in, in, uh, in chapter uh, 1, verse 8 and following, when he describes people who are irreverent and ungodly and profane, he's saying, I did that. Uh, people who hit their parents or commit murder, I did that, Paul says, or cheat on their spouse or have same-sex attraction or kidnap and enslave people or lie and commit perjury. I did that, Paul says. All these, he's saying, can be forgiven and will be forgiven in the one who trusts in Jesus. But reject Jesus and you have no hope. I was forgiven because of my ignorance and unbelief and all my wicked sins because Jesus rescued me. So, therefore, what Paul is doing is he is actually holding out hope to the very people he is speaking against in God's church. These false teachers who've, who've twisted the, the role of the law in the life of God's people, who've misunderstood the place of law and grace and how it's the gospel that saves you. And they've been saying the wrong things about it. As some preachers I know very personally have said, 
and Lord willing, may never say again, but have certainly said at times the wrong thing about the relationship between law and gospel and grace. Paul is saying, God had mercy upon me and I got it all wrong. There's hope for you, Paul is saying. And I want to say this to us, until we realize that what we deserve is hell, Jesus on the cross will mean nothing to us. But when you see him hanging there for you, you can begin to be honest about your sins that nailed him there. And so Paul says, justice would have wiped me out, but I received mercy. There's mercy for you. And Paul says, don't ever let me forget it. I want this on public display in the church. I need to remember this. And it's helpful to remember what we were and what we've done. Thomas Goodwin uh, once wrote a letter to his son in which he said, when I was threatening to become cold in the ministry, when I felt a Sabbath morning coming, and my heart was not filled with amazement at the grace of God, or when I was ready to dispense the Lord's Supper, do you know what I used to do? He said to his son, I used to take a turn up and down the sins of my past life. And I always came down again with a broken and contrite heart, ready to preach, as it was preached in the beginning, the forgiveness of sins. I do not think I ever went up to the pulpit stair that I did not stop for a moment at the foot of it and take a turn up and down the sins of my past years. I do not think I ever planned a sermon that I did not take a turn around my study table and look back at the sins of my youth and of all my life down to the present. And many a Sabbath morning when my soul had been cold and dry for the lack of prayer during the week, a turn up and down in my past life before I went into the pulpit always broke my hardened heart. It made me close with the gospel for my own soul before I began to preach it. And gratitude will, will grow, friends, in that kind of soil for all of us. And it will make us better servants. And at this table, as we prepare to come weekly, we remember why we need this Savior. And it stokes our gratitude. Now, can you be honest about your sins? Are you thankful for his salvation. And there's a third thing that the gospel produces. And that is faith and love. Notice his language now. He says. Uh, I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. Verse 14. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me. With the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The gospel made him thankful. It made him honest. And the gospel brought him faith and love. As grace overflowed. You know, some people sometimes get into the ministry, become teachers of God's word, not because they have faith, but because they, they hope somehow to get it. And people do this sometimes. I, I knew uh, plenty of people in seminary who went into the seminary counseling program, uh, not because they wanted to figure things out to help other people, but because they knew that they were so twisted up and they were just looking for help for themselves. Well, ministers could do that too. Ministers tend to be really guilty folks, and they're just looking for a lifeline. But sometimes they go into ministry not actually having faith in that lifeline, but they're seeking it. In college, when he was in college, Charles Wesley, the now great hymn writer, founded what's called the Holy Club. 
His uh, brother John Wesley, the famous founder of Methodism, and George Whitfield, the great famous evangelist, they were all members of the Holy Club. It was a religious society built around extreme discipline. To be part of the club, you had to rise very early every morning, carry on rigorous devotions. At night, you were expected to make notes in your journal, fast twice a week, and visit prisoners in the Oxford jail. Their fellow classmates mocked them when one night one of them was out in a rainstorm in the mud on his knees, presumably mourning or grieving or calling out to God, but they called this group the Holy Club. It was the pejorative of their enemies, so to speak. The strict method that they had for their religious practices became known as Methodism, or they became known as Methodists. But by their own testimony, not a one of them was actually converted to faith in Christ until after leaving Oxford University and after leaving the Holy Club. Seven years of restless striving to please God by his own high standards of noble work and religious piety wore him out. And he didn't know the freedom and joy of salvation by the work of the religious piety of Jesus on his behalf, which alone is perfect. Wesley got ordained as a deacon, and then the next Sunday a priest couldn't do that on the same day. And in the Church of England, he went off traveling to the United States, to Georgia, to become a missionary while he served as private secretary to the governor of Georgia. And he was, and his brother, were both utter failures by their own testimony in the work. The people rejected them. Governor Oglethorpe rejected them. They wanted nothing to do with these religious guys and their methods. But on a ship overcome by storm, fearing for their lives, a Moravian brother didn't fear for his own life. And John asked him, do you know Jesus Christ? Uh, John was asked, This is now John Wesley. Do you know Jesus Christ? And John said, I know he's the savior of the world. And then they asked, but do you know he is your savior? And unable to answer, he began to doubt his own salvation. And he wrote in his journal, I went to America to convert the Indians, but who will convert me? And in February 24th, 1738, Charles was likewise struggling with his salvation. He became sick in bed with extreme pain, actually the extreme pain of a toothache that uh, made him absolutely miserable. And Peter Bowler, a Moravian pastor, came to see him. He asked me, says Charles, do you hope to be saved? Yes, I replied. For what reason do you hope it? Because, said Charles, I have used my best endeavors to serve God. Bowler shook his head and said no more. I thought him very uncharitable, says Wesley, saying in my heart, what, are not my endeavors a sufficient ground of hope? Would he rob me of my endeavors? I have nothing else to trust to. Back home three months later, Charles attended a small service of worship with some Moravian Believers who were very devout. And that evening after reading Isaiah 40 verse 1, which says, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. And goes on to talk about the coming of the Messiah and every valley will be raised up and every mountain and hill made low and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all mankind together shall see it. 
He reads that and he finally finds peace. He says, now I found myself at peace with God, rejoiced in hope of a loving Christ. I saw that by faith I stood, by the continual support of faith I was kept from falling, though my, by myself I was ever sinking into sin. Because it's not enough to want to be godly or want to have faith. And the ministry can't give you either one. But only mercy can give you these things. And immediately Charles Wesley began to write hymns. The hymns he's so famous for, he poured out within the first year and a half. He, he wrote some of the best hymns he's ever written in the immediate blush of new love for Jesus. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king, came within a year, 1739. Christ the Lord is risen today. We'll probably sing it next week, 1739, same year. Wrote a conversion hymn, oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great redeemer's praise. Wrote it on the anniversary, or for the anniversary of his conversion within a year. Jesus, lover of my soul, to thy bosom uh, fly, I fly. 1740, year and a half. But his earliest known hymn that we still sing today was written just in a couple of months after his conversion, in which he says, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. And can it be? Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? What's he saying? I was stuck in my sins, trapped in them, imprisoned in darkness, and I was blind, I couldn't see, and God shot an arrow of light into the dungeon of the prison of my dark heart, and he showed me Jesus, and I woke up, and I followed Jesus. Why the sudden and brilliant burst of songs of praise? Because, as Paul says, grace abounded to me, along with the faith, And love that is in Christ Jesus. Paul is saying grace like a river overflowed its banks like the mighty Mississippi. And it swamped the delta of my soul. And upsprung faith and love, he says. When God's grace got a hold of me, it did what the law could never do for me, Paul says. It brought me to faith and helped me to love. Paul says I'm not a self-made man. Everything I needed to do to do the work of ministry was given to me by Jesus. He doesn't say everything I have I worked for. He says I wasn't equipped. And God equipped me. He strengthened me, graced me, faithed me, and loved me. So I want to say this. Nobody ought to go into the ministry or presume to teach others until they know that they're a needer of mercy. Only that will stop our contempt of other sins who don't meet our high standards and make us able to help them by pointing to Jesus who alone has reached the high standard on our behalf. And so Paul says, you know what the healthy effect of the gospel in my life is? And it's true for all of us. It makes us thankful to him. It 
helps us be honest about our sinfulness. And it bears fruit in love and faith. Now, is that what the gospel is producing in you? May it be so. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for Jesus. We pray that we would be the beneficiaries of every good thing in him. In his name I ask it.